Hello and welcome to Co-OpCast, a podcast about cooperative board games with your hosts, Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly. Hi everybody, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. Hello, how are you, internet? And apparently I just went through puberty right there. <laughs> I, I often uh, vary the pitch of my voice uncontrollably. Yes, and welcome to episode 7 of Co-OpCast. Lucky number 7. In this episode, we're going to be discussing The Captain is Dead by AEG. Yeah, The Captain is Dead. I, I picked this up fairly recently. We've played several times, mostly with three or four characters. Sometimes with some of us playing two characters. I've also played it solo quite a bit. Uh, and Peter's going to explain the theme of the game, which is a, a pretty fun one. Alright, so in The Captain is Dead... You are in a ship. Just picture yourself in your favorite sci-fi show. Most people, I think, are going to strongly correlate this to Star Trek, where everything has gone wrong. Your ship is under attack by the enemy mothership, and it's launching all kinds of crazy things. It's, it's teleporting aliens onto your ship. There are spaceships attacking you. Everything's going wrong. Your job as one of the crew members is to get your jump core back online, so that way you can get out of dodge. So, Mike, why don't you go ahead and get us into a quick explanation of the rules? All right, so like a lot of uh, co-op games, you start with several bad things happening at the beginning. Uh, Think Pandemic, where you draw a bunch of cities right out the start. So here, uh, most of the cards will break the systems on your ship. You've got a whole bunch of different systems that give you special actions or provide you the opportunity to get new cards to your hand or uh, fight off threats, or let you see which threats are coming. But when you get down to like the really basic level, what you're doing on your turn is you generally get four actions. Uh, depending on the character, you might have one more. Some characters have five actions in certain circumstances. And you have some very basic actions you can always take. You can always move around this fairly small board showing your spaceship, and the board has a bunch of locations that are keyed to special actions you can take. Uh, you can move around. If you're in the computer core, you can get cards, which are uh, either for science, engineering, tactical, or command. So kind of in four suits, four colors, if you will. Um, you can repair systems if you're in the location of that system. If the teleporter is active, you can teleport someone else or yourself straight to any location. You can fire torpedoes if you're in the torpedo room. And probably the most important action, if you have a bunch of engineering cards and you're in the engineering bay, then you can repair the jump core, and that's actually the trigger for winning the game. You have to repair the jump core a certain number of times based on the difficulty you've selected. Well, and I think that's core to the game, right? Is you are, Your goal of the game is you're really collecting these cards, trying to get sets of cards, similar to what you do in Pandemic, or even a game like Ticket to Ride, you're collecting sets of cards to let you do a lot of these actions in the game. Sure, and uh, players can trade cards among themselves if they're in the same location or even if they're in different locations if uh, the communication system is still active. And you can also fight aliens in your location. So it's a mix of fighting off the aliens, repairing the systems to keep your ship alive, repairing your shields as you take damage, and then probably most importantly is repairing the actual jump core to push forward to winning. So a lot of the actions in the game, like repairing something, repairing the jump core, repairing a system that's been broken, firing a torpedo, will require a certain number of actions, usually one or two out of your four, and uh, will additionally require some number of the symbols from those four suits I mentioned, uh, tactical command, science, and engineering. 
But the thing is, each of the characters might have one or more of those symbols on their character card. And that is a permanent discount every time you have to pay that kind of cost. So if you're repairing something and it requires two engineering and one tactical, and your character has one engineering and one tactical on their sheet, they only need to pay a single engineering card in addition to the, the action cost to actually complete that repair. So uh, through, the, through your actions, some characters will be better at some things than others and be more efficient with their card usage. After you've done your four or five actions, you draw the top card of the bad deck, which starts out with uh, weak green cards, then gets to yellow cards, then if you survive long enough, gets to red cards, which to completely destroy you. And yeah, some of the cards will teleport guys on, some of the cards will attack your shields, uh, some of them will put science-related like diseases and things on your ship that have a lasting effect from turn to turn that make you unable to do things as well. And you'll take different actions to deal with those or just try to push through and ignore them long enough to repair the jump core. And the two ways you lose the game is if either your shields get totally blown up, and usually they're going to do anywhere from 10 damage to 30 or 40 damage to your shields every time they attack. And that's out of 100%, so... Right, or if you get more aliens on the board than you have figures. So you have 12 alien figures. If there are already 12 on the board, you have to add a 13th. That's another way you lose the game. And a final one, if you go through the entire threat deck, green, yellow, and red, I don't even know how you'd survive the red, but if you did survive the red, you lose anyway as the mothership just blasts you out of space. Yeah, so it's a fairly straightforward game. So let's get into a new format that we're going to try this week. I think it's really neat. You know, Mike and I have been talking the way we do a lot of times. This is how we work on design as well. We try to figure out what's working with the show we, or the game. We try to figure out what's not working, and we try to make improvements on it. So I think this is something that's really going to stick. What we're finding is we we're being very negative at the end of every review, so it led into our final thoughts, but it really seemed like we were being more negative, and we really liked a lot of the games we've played. Yeah, with games I absolutely loved, like Arkham Horror LCG, I'd, I'd have to list you know three cons in a row at the end and then say I liked the game, and it, it was a weird kind of disconnect between uh, what I was saying and then my actual feelings overall. Yeah, so what we're going to do now, we're going to call the top five things that you need to know about this game, and it's really going to be top ten because we're each going to give our list of five. So Mike, go ahead and explain uh, exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, so we're going to start kind of like we did in former uh, episodes, if you've listened to those. We're going to start with the sort of most minor of the five things that jump out at us about the game. But now uh, that most minor thing, that number five thing, could be a pro, it could be a con, or it could be kind of a mix of the two. And then we're going to work our way back and forth until we each give our number one thing, the most major thing that jumps out at us about the design and play of this game. Again, could be a pro, could be a con, could be mixed. And we'll still be bouncing back and forth, but we'll be jumping a bit more organically between positives and negatives of the game in terms of how much they kind of hit us in playing it. So to kick off our new format, Peter is going to talk about his number five most interesting thing about The Captain is Dead. All right, so my lowest thing is, it's actually going to start with a con, is that I found the game a little hard to follow when I first started playing. The game is very simple, right? You have a certain number of actions, probably five on your board, but there are actions all over the board. Like there's a teleporter that you can use, but that's just a little card somewhere on the board. You don't have a reference for that in front of you anywhere. You know, you can fire the torpedoes and that's, you know, the actions are by where you need to be, 
But if you don't know what you need to do at the beginning of the game, and there are these actions everywhere, and sometimes they're damaged, so they act differently, it's really kind of hard to follow. And the reason this is my lowest con is I do think it goes away as you've played it more, but it certainly was a barrier to entry for me to this game, which is otherwise a fairly simple game. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. It would have made sense to have a player aid that lists all the possible actions and just defines which location they're tied to. Because, yeah, right now you're looking at, like, six or seven or eight cards kind of around the board to determine what your actual options are. All right, Mike, so what's your number five? Mine is the art style of the game, which uh, if you go and look up some images of it online in the newest AEG edition, it's it's a pretty interesting kind of cartoonish, very like straight-lined art style, kind of angular. And I'm going to say this is a mixed bag. I, I tend to enjoy it, but I think a lot of people could be kind of put off by the art. I find it very unique. It doesn't look like any other game I own. Even the components themselves are fairly unique because uh, the character standees and the uh, alien standees are a clear plastic with sort of like the painted character inside of this plastic arch shape. And I'm, I'm really kind of compelled by that. They have like these big blocky plastic, you know, neon colored-ish rectangles that you move up and down for like the shields and the jump course status and stuff. So yeah, I, I like the design, the sort of weird shape of it, the angular nature of it, but I could see a lot of people being, you know, put off by it. Not such a major thing that you wouldn't play the game, but it's something to think about and see if you like it when you're uh, checking it out online before buying. Yeah, it's very blocky. Yeah. All right, uh, Peter, you're, you're fourth, man. Hit us. So my next one is diversity of characters, and I think this is a little bit of a pro and a con. There are eight different classes of characters, so they could be the captain or the engineer or something else on the ship. Well, they couldn't be the captain because he's dead, I guess. That, that, that is in the name, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I should have figured that out before. So there are eight different roles, though, that they could be, and within each role, there are two or three different characters. So you do have a lot of variety of characters, although I do think you can get bad mixes, and I think some characters are easier to use than others. For example, I know we were talking about earlier in the rules explanation how they could have symbols to give them discounts. If you have two of those engineering discounts, that means you only need three engineering cards every time to repair the jump core, and I think that's way better than some of the other powers in the game that don't give you any discounts toward that action. So, interestingly enough, even with this new format, I had basically the exact same thing for my number four. Characters have really good variety, but that I'm a little bit worried about the balance. So j just to add one small thing, because Peter, you pretty much said all of it. The only thing I would add is that a nice thing in terms of game-to-game -game variety is that since the characters have these discounts, the actions you'll be taking a lot during the game could change drastically based on which characters you have. So, for example, if I if we have a lot of engineering discounts, we're probably going to be rushing to repair the jump core as much as possible and ignoring threats more often because we know that we can get the jump core done more quickly. Compare that to if I have somebody who has a ton of tactical discounts, and I might be firing the torpedoes a lot more to cancel threats altogether and not have threats bother us as much because that's so cheap for me to do and it's a better way to buy us time. If I have somebody with a ton of command assets, I might be getting a lot of these little uh, Captain Plan cards that give you little special powers. If I have somebody with a lot of science, I'll be probably developing more uh, upgrades for the ship. So it does lead to the variety in characters leads to some nice variety in the actions you'll take from game to game. But again, I do agree with Peter that the balance is not perfect, 
And if you want all the characters to be equivalent, you're not going to get that in this game. All right, uh, Peter, what's your third one? Yeah, so my third one is that I think the game is very accessible. And I view this as just a pro. I know some people like more hardcore games. But for me, I like a co-op game to be accessible, something I can bring to the table with almost anybody. And this game has that in spades. You know, notwithstanding the things I said earlier about how it's a little bit hard to figure out at first because you have all these actions available to you, the main thing you're going to do in the game is collect cards. And you do that by going to the center of the ship, to the core, and you're just drawing cards similar to what you do in Ticket to Ride. There's either three face-up cards you can draw from, or you can draw one from the top of the deck. So a lot of your actions are just going to be drawing cards and passing them to the players that need them and can use them most effectively. So I really do think it's a nice accessible co-op game, maybe a second tier, maybe after they played something like Forbidden Island, Pandemic, something like that. But I still think it's pretty accessible. Yeah, that's a, definitely a good point and a pro in its uh, favor. I, I compare this game a lot to one of my favorite co-ops and solo games, which is uh, Space Alert designed by Vlada Chavadal several years back. The theme is kind of similar, you know, in that you're trying to save your spaceship and all working together. I think Space Alert is the better design, but this game is so much easier to teach and so much easier to get to the table that I can see myself playing this ten times more often than I'll play Space Alert. So that accessibility is really good in its favor. Yeah, that's a good point, and it could be almost a gateway to Space Alert, right? Because if people like alien ships attacking you and aliens boarding your ship, it really is an easy way to get that same theme across. Sure, sure. So, Mike, what's your number three? My number three is uh, a pro. So my first two were kind of mixed ones, some good and some bad, but this is, a, this is definitely a pro. I think this game has really good cooperation. And something Peter and I have been discussing a lot lately is how a lot of co-op games actually don't have much cooperation. You kind of each do your thing and don't pay much attention to each other. But in this game, the fact that you can teleport people with your actions, which I haven't really seen in any of those like Pandemic, Forbidden Island kind of action economy based uh, co-ops, really adds a lot to the game. Like if I see a threat coming and you're going to get blasted in your location, I can teleport you to me, which works uh, both like thematically in sort of the Star Trek universe that this is parodying or emulating. And, like, the card trading is really good. I can fix things that will then allow you to do cool actions. I can fix the teleporter to let you get where you need to be. I can come and, like, shoot aliens or heal you if I'm the medic. So I think both the roles and just how the actions kind of interplay with each other, and especially how the teleportation action works, I think this game has a really good cooperation compared to some of the co-op games we've been playing recently. Yeah, and the nice part is anybody can do those actions. Anybody can trade cards to anybody as long as the comm system's online. Anybody could teleport anybody else as long as the teleporter's online. Now, I'll be honest, I don't use those actions probably as much as I should, and maybe that's why I don't do as well at the game, but they are available. All right, Peter, your second most impressive or important thing about this game. Well, it's not going to be impressive, unfortunately. My second thing is replayability. I do think with just the base game out, now I know this game has two forms. The new one is the AEG, and the old one was a GameCrafter version. And the GameCrafter did have some expansions to the game, but in the base game right now, you only have five items, which we didn't really get into, but they're items that help you do things in the game, the same five items every game. You only have four different types of cards, and basically you're collecting those cards throughout the game. So I think the actions do get a little bit similar, because a lot of times you do have to go back to that core and just draw cards up. The last thing is that you can get these upgrades for your ship. I think the upgrade path is going to be pretty obvious what you're going to do first, second, third, 
as well. And I don't think that's going to vary much from game to game. So while there are a lot of different threats that come out to different things, I do think the game can get samey from game to game because the same threats are coming at you and you have the same actions available to you. Really, the major variety from game to game is going to be those characters that you're using. But I don't know that's enough. Yeah, and I'm, I'm right there with you. So my number two, though, uh, I'm going to follow up my third pro with another pro, and that is the theme. I'm a huge Star Trek nerd. I've watched pretty much all the series. Uh, love Next Generation. I've watched every episode of that multiple times. And I think this game, uh, more than any other sci-fi game I can think of, even the games that are actually Star Trek games, really makes me feel like I'm doing stuff in a good episode of Star Trek with aliens teleporting in, you know, the engineer, Scotty, whoever you want to imagine you are, like, running around and getting the engines up just in time. It really hits, like, kind of that fun, like, extreme Star Trek episode vibe. The best example of that is the character who is a hologram, which, uh, that's not Next Generation, that's uh, Voyager, if you haven't watched it. And it's it's just a great, like, little thematic touch because the hologram uh, can't fight enemies because he's a hologram. Um, and if the teleporter's out, he's stuck in, like, the computer bay. He can't even go anywhere without, like, the technology to project him in other places. But he gets more actions, better bonuses. He's better at everything than everybody else because he has such, like, expertise. Now, I just love that character and just, like, the stuff you're doing in the game in general. It makes me feel like I'm in a cool episode of Star Trek, and I adore that. Yeah, so personal uh, admission here is I've never been a huge Star Trek fan. I have seen all the movies, but I don't know that I've seen more than two episodes of any series of the shows. I guess I used to watch a lot of the original Star Trek when I was younger. And when I say a lot, maybe five episodes ever. <laughs> so I'm definitely not a Star Trek fan. And maybe that's why this di game didn't sing to me as much. But I will say that Jerry, who you've heard us talk about before in our group, did love the game, and that's the one thing he mentioned. That was his probably number one thing, is that he loved the theme of the game and how it made you feel like you were in this this universe. All right, big drum roll, Peter. What is your number one most important thing, good or bad? So my number one thing about the game is a pro, and it's I love that this game throws so many things at you. Games solve the alpha player problem in different ways, and I think the way this game solves it is by there is just so many threats coming at you. You have to fix the warp core. You have to fix all these systems in your ship that are breaking or else you can't do all the cool actions we've been talking about this whole game. At some point, the core is going to break, and so you're going to have to fix it even to be able to draw more cards again. So there's always something trying to draw your attention away from that main goal, which is just fixing the jump core. I really like that in co-ops. And I mean, we're going to get into that in a minute, but that is one of my favorite things is when you have all these choices coming at you from different directions and you have to prioritize what is the most important thing for you. Yeah. So I, I agree with all of that, but my final one after two pros is unfortunately a con and it's uh, basically the same as your uh, second one, Peter, that the game suffers in terms of uh, variety and in terms of replayability. I don't want to belabor this too much. Peter went through a lot of the key stuff. But what I'll quickly add is that you have the exact same green, yellow, and red uh, threat cards every game. So the only variety is what order they come out in. In general, you're going to see basically the exact same green cards every game. And I think they could have fixed this very easily. They could have had, like, variant or advanced versions of the systems, like a teleporter that works slightly differently. 
They could have had more green, yellow, and red cards, and you remove a random number at the beginning of each game. I think all of that stuff would improve the gameplay experience. And Peter mentioned that uh, the GameCrafter version had two expansions, and I think if AEG is going to expand the game, they're most likely going to use those two expansions that are already made and well-reviewed. But the thing about those expansions is that they are standalone expansions. Yes, they require the base game, but they have you doing an entirely new challenge with entirely new cards. So they're not going to give you more options for the core game. They're just going to give you a new way to play, which, don't get me wrong, is very cool. But it does make me doubtful that they're ever going to really, truly expand the replayability of the core game experience. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, obviously. That was my number two, and I do think it's a problem. It would have been my number one, except I'm just holding out hope that new material comes out for it. All right, Mike, well, since you had a short number one, why don't you go ahead and lead into your final thoughts? So to get to our final thoughts, as you know, I had two mixed ones, two pros, and one con, but the con was the biggest. So overall, the game is good, but not great for me. Um, if I was going to rate it, I would probably be with a, a B- minus or a solid B. It's fine. If you if you like the theme, it's definitely a pretty solid one in terms of like kind of feeling like you're in a Star Trek episode. It's pretty accessible. It's pretty cheap. Um, it can be attractive if you dig the, the art style they're going with. But yeah, I would say uh, it's definitely a cautious recommend and, and not even a full recommend anyway. I think there are better, more uh, innovative co-ops out there that you'll get a lot more play out of. How about you, Peter? Uh, what's, what's your overall feeling of the game? Yeah, I kind of felt the same. It's kind of a meh for me. Now, that is for our game group, though, and I do think we play games a little differently. We have started to really value replay of a game. But I know in today's day and age, with so many new games coming out each day, that not everybody feels the same way. Some people are happy playing a game once or twice. And I think those first couple of experiences with the game will be really good. It's the kind of game where, because it's quick, it takes a little while to learn the first time. But then once you get it, it's pretty straightforward at that point. And again, nothing's going to change from game to game. So I do think that's good for a couple of game experience. But I do think if you want anything more than that, you know, if you if you want to bring this out every week for, you know, three weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, I think people are going to start grumbling at that after a while. Yeah, and I will say, if you can get through the, the teaching, I do think Space Alert is a better spaceship game if you can, you know, <laughs> get people to play it with you on a consistent basis because it has a lot more difficulty in teaching and kind of getting people to buy into the game. Well, it seems like neither of us were very hot on this one this week. But you know what we are hot about? Our intense design debate for the week. Peter, tell us about what we'll be debating. So this week we're going to debate whether one goal is enough for the game or whether you need these distractions that come into the game, you know, that make the decisions tactical from round to round or whether just surviving till the end is enough of a goal to make a cooperative game interesting. Yeah, to illustrate what we're talking about, uh, I'm going to be arguing on the side that uh, short-term tactical goals can be enough to be interesting. So, for example, a game like Castle Panic, you don't really do anything in that game except for fighting the attacking monsters turn to turn. You don't have to split your attention. Whereas something like Eldritch Horror, you need to be putting out the immediate fires of gates opening and you know events resolving and that kind of stuff but at the same time try to split your attention and work towards solving the three mysteries that will defeat the Great Old One. So I'm on the side that it's okay just to have 
short-term tactical, like, survive until you win kind of games. Peter's going to be arguing for the benefits of uh, splitting your attention between long and short-term goals. So, Peter, with that said, uh, go ahead, man, hit me. What do you think uh, makes having this split attention such a good thing? Well, I really think that a game can get stale. I think that's when people talk about games getting stale, games getting repetitive, is when your sole goal is just to survive till the end. So exactly what you were talking about earlier, Castle Panic, your only goal every round is to get rid of the immediate threats that are coming at you for every round, and there's no long-term planning. There's no, well, maybe I should do this, or maybe I should do this. With Castle Panic, if I have a card that says Red Swordsman, I'm going to hit somebody in the Red Swordsman ring. So for me, it's just not as tactically interesting when you're just focusing on that one goal of just stopping it without having other things that you could also be doing with those same resources. I agree with what you're saying, but I think you're kind of arguing the wrong debate because I think what you're talking about is where games have limited action selections and limited variety in the threats. You know, we we talked about Space Alert in the review, and I'll throw Space Alert out here. In Space Alert, you know, you're not trying to split your attention between, like, you know, it's not like uh, the captain is dead where you have to put actions into getting the jump drive ready. You are going to jump away at that same time marker every time. You're just trying to fight off the threats and survive. But Space Alert has internal threats, external threats, and a lot of variety even within those. So you're doing very different things to fight those enemies. So I think what you're talking about is limit in the variety of a game, but I I think that's a separate issue between whether or not you have just tactical goals or a split between tactical and strategic goals. Well, let's use Space Alert as an example. You have things like you have to jiggle the mouse once around. So not only is that goal to just go and do an action when you're in that correct space, but part of thinking about that goal is you have to keep somebody near it for when the next round comes around as well. So I do think in Space Alert, your actions are divided. You're not just thinking about that immediate threat. You have other actions on the board you need to worry about. Somebody's going to get the robot because eventually you're going to have an internal threat. Now the question is, do I need to divert power now? So I actually think that game is not one where there is just one goal to survive till the end. I think there are a lot of things diverting your attention. Okay, I, I do agree with you. Although I think that if, if we expand the definition too far, then everything will be on your side. Because you could say in Castle Panic, you've got guys in the third like tier and the second tier in the first tier, and you can't just focus on the first tier. You know, there's, there's shorter and longer term planning in every game. But, you know, I don't think you can just take every game for your side automatically. But with that said, let me make a point. I think it's easier to balance a game when you just have sort of one type of action or, you know, just the short-term threats to deal with. I think a lot of games that have that mix of long-term and short-term can lead to really lopsided games where either the long-term becomes way too important or way too easy, or uh, conversely, the short-term is way too important or way too easy. I've had many games of Eldritch Horror where I could pretty much ignore the monsters, ignore the gates, and just charge into those mystery cards and still win the game handily. And suddenly I've got all this design space, all these interesting adventures I should have had that didn't happen because it's hard to get that balance right between forcing you to go for the long-term goal and like really distracting you in a meaningful way with the short-term goals. Right, and I think you do have to do them well. Just like with any discussion we're going to have in any design debate, 
it's really important that the designer gets it right, gets that balance right, because you're right. If it is lopsided one way or another, it's not going to be as interesting. That being said, I think even having those things there, they are going to come into play at some point. You're never going to 100% be able to ignore every gate that comes out. You're never going to 100% be able to ignore every monster. The decision the players have to make is whether they are going to focus on those things right now. I mean, Pandemic's another great example of long and short-term things intermingling. Your goal for the game is really just to collect cards. So a lot of times you are doing that survival mode. The question is, do I want to cure diseases this turn? Do I want to use my cards to move myself around, not maybe having those cards for later in the game. So I think when you have multiple choices to use the resources you have, it makes those decisions more interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll give you that. So what would you say is another pro of having the mix besides the decisions being more interesting potentially? I mean, do do you think the tension is greater when you have like long and short term or just a lot of short term building up? Because I would say... uh, a lot of games, like Ghost Stories, I guess you sort of have a long term in that you have to survive until the big boss guy comes out at the end, but you can't actually do anything to accelerate when he shows up. So I would say that's mostly in my camp. Yes, it, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I would say at the same time, that game is incredibly tense because they get the ramp up right. And I think uh, you, you can really uh, get a great, engaging co-op experience with a short-term, tactical, like turn-to-turn decision kind of game that ramps up in a really meaningful, you know, stressful way. Well, and I guess we are talking semantics here because it really just depends on the end of the spectrum. Because even in ghost stories, do I go fight a ghost this turn or do I get some more tokens in my hand to help me fight the next ghost? So there are, even in that game, very tactical choices you're making from round to round. I guess you couldn't have one that is solely focusing. I mean, Castle Panic is probably the closest thing we have where it's just spend your hand this turn, and then see what happens next turn. There aren't a lot of strategic decisions there that you're saving for this giant long-term plan. So I really do think it's hard, you're right, for something to be 100% on one side of the camp or the other. Yeah. But the more those two things are balanced for me, the more interesting the game is. And I do think it is that tension. I do think I like making strategic decisions with my resources. And that's probably the biggest one for me. Like a game like Eldritch Horror, I like deciding which cards to keep in my hand and which cards to spend this turn. Now, it doesn't always work out, but I like having those choices. I feel like I'm making strategic decisions with my resources. Do I want them now or do I want to save them for later? You mean Arkham Horror LCG, right? Yes, correct. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I, yeah, I mean, obviously, whenever we have these debates, we're kind of both in the middle a little bit anyway, and we arbitrarily pick a side. But yeah, I mean... I'll give it to you that a well-designed game with that uh, that tension between the two can be good. I mean, uh, you know, we uh, one of our designs, Salvation Road, is very much a game where you have the mix of trying to satisfy, like, turn-to-turn demands to keep yourself alive, alive, but at the same time collecting the fuel and stuff you need to drive the truck to safety. Yeah, and I think that one's interesting because I think people with that game sometimes do view it as just a long-term strategic game. What you were saying earlier with Elder Tar, where you can just ignore the monsters and the threats, with Salvation Road, you definitely can't do that. If you just focus on the long-term goals, you're definitely not going to do well. And I think that can get frustrating for people because they don't always even understand those tactical decisions that they're making from turn to turn. And they're very important in being successful in the game. And that's why it has a bit of a learning curve. Yeah, and I I think that's kind of what 
what the impetus was behind us making the uh, the easier game variant on BGG, because people would suddenly get blindsided with some like incredibly vicious you know famine event or whatever and starve to death, and especially for beginning players. It is easy, I guess, to get lost in that blindly pursuing the end-of-game objective and not realize how much danger you're actually in. Right. Which I guess is... A, is I guess that's kind of a danger in terms of price of entry for games that are more complex in the interplay between the victory conditions and the turn-to-turn stuff you have to do because you're more likely to get it wrong one way or the other. You know, so I play Castle Panic. I'm not going to, like... I, you know, I might use my cards in an inefficient way or maybe not defeat a guy I should have focused on, but generally I'm going to get it right. But if I play Captain is Dead and I just, like, spend all my time repairing the jump core and don't even pay attention to the enemies blasting us out of space and the guys landing on our ship, then I'm going to get really surprised when I lose all of a sudden, like, out of seemingly out of the blue to me, even though I should have been playing better and paying attention. And I guess it leads to that tactical depth we were talking about. I really do like games where you're not going to figure it out the first time. What I think is a nice thing that some co-op games have done, especially recently, is uh, this kind of programmed learning, you know, scenario to scenario. Uh, For example, Mechs vs. Minions, you can play the first scenario and it's almost entirely tactical and very simple, the tutorial especially. But even the one with the bomb, you have to somewhat think strategically, but you can kind of do stuff and you might end up winning anyway. And then they slowly complicate the game as the missions go on, and you have to think longer term. I think that's probably a good way to handle things if you're going to have a more complex game with more uh, distraction between short and long-term goals. I think it's cool to have some simpler scenarios that will kind of walk you through that so you don't have the negative play experience when you go you know, full bore one way or the other and really screw yourself up. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that is something that I wish we had done more and certainly something we're looking at for future designs of ours are how to ramp up that complexity. Because, well, there's there's two things that are really dividing people right now. Number one is people don't play a game 10, 15, 20 times to get good at it anymore. And that's part of the problem. And then the other problem is if you make it too easy, some people will say, well, this game's too easy and I don't want to play it after the first time. And then the second problem with that is if you make it too hard, people go, well, there's no strategy in this game because clearly I did everything right. And, you know, there can't be a learning curve. I can't learn as I'm going along. So you really do have to get that balance right for the first game. And maybe even the scenario system helps you with that because people go, well, this game was too easy, but let me give it a second chance. And let me go on and see if there is more depth and complexity. So I think the the thing you have to be careful of, though, when you design a game where you're going to introduce multiple elements, but they're not there in the first game, I think you have to be a little bit cautious that people don't think your game is overly simple. Well, you also get into, I mean, we're, we're getting a little bit off field here, but uh, you get into some really weird rulebook issues. I'm thinking of the Harry Potter card game where you've got these like little pamphlets for each of the uh, book that adds different rules and you don't have like one source that goes through everything and and several games with like scenario based things. I know Earth Reborn was a terrible one. And even uh I've been playing Legends of Andor a lot recently. And that's not too bad because they do have a centralized rule book, but not everything is in there. It's kind of like Mage Knight where it's between different things and you can't get everything in one rule book. And yeah, that, that one, uh, in walking you through stuff, they separate where you can find information. I think that's a bad idea. Even though I know this is a divisive issue, I prefer the learn-to-play and like rules reference uh, path that Fantasy Flight has been taking for the last year or two. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, especially if you're having a game with with this strategic depth. But we have gone way off subject here. (laughs) Yeah. So to bring it back a little bit, let's get into Andor a little bit. So Andor is an interesting case because you learn the game as you play it. Really, the whole goal, they give you a different goal from mission to mission. And you are basically torn, though. That is another one where you're torn between things because you have to fight these guys off and stop them from invading the city. That is usually your loss condition. But one of your other loss conditions is pushing the timer up all the way up the track. And every time you defeat one of these guys, really, you're pushing that timer up. So it really does give you interesting decisions to make from turn to turn based on that. And so I don't know exactly if it falls into that camp of giving you multiple decisions but i guess that's the bottom line of of my argument is i like things that are give you strategic decisions that balance the long and the short term yeah and i'll give that to you Andor is an interesting case because a lot of games you know you'll fall behind on the long-term decision just because you put a lot of time into the short-term decision but it's more just because you didn't spend the actions on the long-term decision Andor actively, like, defeats you when you defeat the enemies, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just that you didn't take the actions to go and solve the puzzle or whatever. It's that you are actually pushing yourself closer to losing by fighting. So that one, in most scenarios, you need to find, like, the exact balance between how many enemies you can kill and how many you need to leave alive, which I enjoy. It kind of works out to be, like, a big puzzle, but I know that uh, when that game came out, some people found it stale or even kind of challenged their beliefs of what a fantasy game should be because we're all used to dungeon crawlers where defeating every single monster is certainly a good thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how about a game like Mansions of Madness? That game does give you a different objective each mission, and you do have these little monsters popping up, but I think it's really obvious. You know, you're going to defeat the ones that are in your way. You're going to outrun the ones that are behind you and push toward that end goal. I would actually put that more in your camp of a game that you just are trying to get to that end goal. And each turn, you don't have a lot of tactical decisions. You're really moving toward that end goal. I agree with you, and I like Mansions of Madness, but that's one of my problems with it. I don't feel like I'm really working toward anything in that one a lot. I would, I would almost say that in Mansions of Madness, you don't really have meaningful choices in general because you don't know what the consequences of your choices are going to be. And that's fine. That's the mystery like element of the game. But, you know, like I have a table I can look under, I have a painting I can look at, and I have a piano I can play. And I have no information for which of those three is going to propel me towards the ending or help to solve a short-term, you know, dilemma. I just kind of pick based on whatever I feel like or a guess. And yeah, that, that's a problem I have with Mansions of Madness. Although it is, again, good for, like, the cinematic movie experience because it's just all short-term decisions. And by luck, you might sort of fall into working toward the long-term goal but you don't really have enough information to actually figure it out well is that then the one time a short-term goal structure works is one where you're trying to create a cinematic feel and it's almost like rather than playing a game trying to make strategic decisions you're kind of playing the game out to see what the outcome of the mission is so make it more cinematic almost because you do feel like you have a little bit of a lack of control and maybe even bring some tension in because of that well it's funny you say all that because that sounds a heck of a lot like tales of the arabian nights 
And that is not a game that you're a big fan of. <laughs> no, no, not even a little bit. But that's definitely a game where you just pick some random stuff and see what happens. And yeah, I, 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 now to, to be fair, Mansions of Madness certainly ratchets up the tension more and you do have a goal in mind. Whereas Tales of the Arabian Nights, you're like, I'm going to get some money, maybe. And you have literally no idea what's going to happen. Well, and I do think you have more strategic choice in Mansions of Madness than we give it credit for. In fact, I even think you have more strategic choice in that than a lot of the missions I played for Sword and Sorcery. Because at least if there are three things to look at and you know you need to look at one of them, you can have several people come to that room and do the exploring. You don't have to split up. So you have choices of what you want to do. Whereas in Sword and Sorcery, you always kind of need a big group of people in one spot. And that way you overwhelm the enemy because of that bonus you get or bonus you're giving them if you don't have enough people in the spot. I actually think there's less strategic choices in a game like Sword and Sorcery because of that one element of the game, which is one hit doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a big deal in that game. And so I really do think it limits your options because you do kind of have to pile onto one space. Yeah, I mean, that's that's been my... You've only played in the one campaign with me and then a little bit with uh, with Nicholas. But in some of my other like little plays with it, especially with ranged heroes where they're not all in the same spot, that doesn't necessarily come into play as much as you think. And I've had like heroes split up and still be successful. But anyway, I think we've uh, agreed that the most important thing is a good design and that either one can, either type of game can fail without that. Yeah, for me, I've come to a little bit more clarity on it. I do think that if you're making a more strategic game, having a lot of options and a lot of strategic depth is important. Having those tactical short-term versus long-term goals are important. But if you're making a game that's more theme-based, I do think that it is okay to just have a long-term goal and kind of figure out what you're doing as you go along and maybe not have as tough a decisions. Games like Sword and Sorcery, games like Mansions of Madness, I think it might be okay for them to just have that one long-term goal and not challenge you tactically from turn to turn as much. Whereas games like Pandemic, I think it would get stale if there weren't multiple choices and multiple threats and multiple things coming at you from turn to turn and having to decide what you want to do with that hand of cards and giving you different options to use those for. I I think it's important more in that Euro type feel. Yeah, I I agree with everything you said. That's that's a good call. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-op Cast. Thanks for joining us on Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to discuss another great cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes, and feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. Alrighty. We are live. We are bringing the sound to your eardrums, and you're going to like it. Yep, this is like a episode of something. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk there. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for you to say something, but certainly not that. Do you, you stole want me- my bit, Do- man. I was all excited about it. <laughs> all right, well, I, I thought you didn't sound very excited. That's no, why I'm, I'm super excited. I hate you. All right, that worked out. I mean, we definitely had a lot of tangents, but...
Tell me you recorded all that, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's in there. Hi, I'm nice. Peter Gooses. <laughs> and welcome to... Go Offcast. <laughs> that's my announcer voice, man. Don't mess yeah, with I, it. It's great. I got no problem with it. I, I, I dig our intro music, man. I don't know what genre it is. It's like child punk, you know? It's like... <laughs> Funkadelic. Well, you for know my neighbor made that, right? What do you say? My neighbor made that, Jason. Oh, I forgot about that. I, I, yeah, it, it, I, I, you had told me that, and we, we should probably, we should like acknowledge him at some, like at the end of the show. Do we do that? Have a good one, everybody.